The sermon series is, uh, we're kind of traveling through some of the different cities in, in the early church, so this Sunday we're in Colossians. It's going to take us a while this morning, though, to actually get to the city boundaries. We're going to be traveling there almost the whole morning, trying to kind of prepare ourselves for walking into the city. Um, but we will eventually get to the church in Colossians. That's Colossians chapter 2. If you're using one of our Bibles, it's page 817. And if you don't have a Bible, please consider that a gift uh, to take and read and know God better. I, I am a bit of a hobbyist in the sense of I need a hobby. I, I need to attach my identity to something, you know. So I'm a fan of a team or I have a hobby or whatever. And, and this is especially true of hobby people, but I think it's generically true of people in general. That when you're going to embark on some part of life that's going to contribute to your identity, what I mean to say is, if, if you're a, a student in University of Delaware in the College of Business, and you decide that you should learn how to play golf because, you know, that's where it all happens. Um, so you're going to become a golfer, right? So you're going to say, that's going to be another element of my identity, that when I fill out that little sheet, what do I like to do, that periodically shows up in your life, you can say, I'm a golfer. Well, whenever this happens, whether it's golf or whatever, we are a, we, there is this tendency, especially if the checkbook allows, to buy the look of the golfer before you actually even know how to golf. You want to look the part. We want to look the part. We're, that, we're those kinds of people. We want to look. So, so there are people that if, they, if they're deep enough pockets, they'll show up for the first time ever on a golf course with brand spanking new shoes. Not the cheese ball shoes, the good shoes, the clackety-clack ones that make noise. And you'll have the knickerbockers and the little hat and you'll have fancy ping clubs and little Disney character socks on them. And you'll have all the things in your pockets that raise things and push things. You have four different sizes of tees because you don't know how to play golf, so you don't know what size you're supposed to have. But you buy them all because, and you look the part until you step up on the first tee and you send the ball into the water and everybody else who knows how to play golf and they're playing in their tennis shoes laughs at you. And this is how, this is how we just generally are. You, know? you can tell that somebody once decides they want to be a weightlifter or a gym guy. And then what do they do? They buy men's health subscription and they get those parachute pants, you know, the Rex Quandos, and they get the, the leather belt with the lumbar support and they get the black gloves with the knuckle holes and they're always sipping on a po- protein drink. Everywhere you go, it's their way of saying, I'm a lifter. I'm a lifter. That's just how it is. And, and I'm picking on the guys. It's just as true with the ladies, but I'd get in trouble. But it's true. It's just true. I mean, women about to have their first child are the best equipped people on the earth. They want to look the part. And there's some element of that that's good and it's healthy, right? You want to be what you are not yet. And one way of kind of playing into it is almost role-playing into it. You're kind of leaning forward into this idea. But not everything about it is healthy. Because you can gain a mistaken identity by the way you dress and equip yourself. You're not really a golfer. You just have nice shoes. And that, that is very true in the Christian life. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about this morning is how we, how we deal with the equipment or the clothing or the accoutrements or, or the, the visible of the Christian life versus the identity of the Christian life that we're really trying to gain 
and to gain for ourselves. And so we're going to do that. The way we're going to get to the Church of Colossians is actually through John 15. I think this John 15 that was read earlier is, is a really excellent way of us dealing with identity. And it comes through the metaphor that Christ gives of him being the vine and us being the branches. When Jesus speaks to us in John 15, he says this. He says, this, he says I am the vine. What does he mean when he says that? What he's saying is, your life comes from me. I'm the vine. I am the source of life. That, that the life blood that you, you want, the eternal, lasting blood of life that, that needs to infuse the body of a Christian and give us new life to do things, has to come from the vine. You cannot, on your own, produce Fruit unto lasting life. It's not going to happen. You need to be attached to the vine. Jesus says, I am the vine. Life comes through me. Now the vine doesn't bear fruit, does it? The vine bears branches. And we're the branches. Jesus says, I'm the vine. I give life. You are the branches. And the branches, they produce fruit. That's what branches do. We produce the fruit. That's what we're supposed to do. That's our purpose. In fact, it says, my father's the gardener. He walks around the vineyard. He looks at the vine, and he looks at the branches, and those branches which do not bear fruit, he cuts off and he throws into the fire. But those branches that do produce fruit, he prunes them back, so from season to season they might be more fruitful. The vine gives life. The branches bear fruit. That's what we do. But this is where it all goes wrong, too. So let me re- rephrase the question. What do we do? We bear fruit. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to remain in Christ. Right? I'm the vine. You are the branches. Remain in me, and you'll bear fruit. That's the teaching. In other words, we, the, the purpose of the branch is to bear fruit, But what the branch is supposed to do is not concentrate on bearing fruit. That's not what the branch is supposed to do. The branch is supposed to concentrate on remaining inside of the vine. That should be the consuming desire and focus and attention of the branch. It's not what am I producing, how productive am I being, what do I look like, what's coming, what's coming out of my life, but rather, but who is working through me? How close am I to the life-giving Christ who's changed me and is changing me and is rebuilding me? How close am I am to him? Remain in him. Direct yourself towards him. What does it mean to remain? It means to hold on, to stay connected, and to bind yourself. Just imagine in this, in this idea, Christ saying remain, and the idea of the vine It's almost the idea of saying, let your fibers and your sinews grow tightly into me. So that people would mistake a branch for the vine. That's what we are supposed to do. The fruit comes. right? The fruit is simply a manifestation of the life-giving blood of the vine at the end of the branch. We are a conduit for the blood of Christ to do something. What we are supposed to do is be part of the vine, to remain in the vine. So what does it mean? How do you remain? John says it. Well, Christ says it in John 15. He says, this is how you'll know you remain in me if you keep my commands. 
Namely, most notably, the commands to love God and to love others. He says that. This is where the greater love is, is, there is no greater love than this than to lay down one's life for their brother. That comes out of John 15, right? It was read this morning, this idea of love directed towards God and love directed towards others. That is the basis upon which all the laws of the prophets are built. And so what, what, he's, what, he's, what Jesus is saying is, is that love, and not kind of romantic love, I, I oftentimes think the mind has a hard time getting around the rom- a romantic love with the Lord. That's not the love that's being talked about here. It's an affection, a loyal affection towards God. The kind of affection that de- desires to be with God, or to be more like God, or to please God, and to bring pleasure to Him, and, and to experience His pleasure towards us, just to know if... You want, your relationship with God is right when you're in your imagination. If he's smiling at you, it brings you joy. That's it. That's what you're searching for. That's the love of Scripture, that, of man towards God, is an affection that says, I prefer God over others. I prefer to be with him rather than being to myself. And I certainly pre- prefer being so closely united to him that the fruit of my life is his fault. That's, that's the love that's being talked about here in John 15. But here's, here's the problem. So, Christ is the vine, we are the branches. We bear fruit, but our job, our purpose in life, our, our labor in life, rather, is to remain in Christ, and that will bear fruit. But how do we remain in Christ? We obey his commands. And how do we obey his commands? Well, we love. And it's, it's easy for me just to say that and say, now go. The question is, as honest people go, well, what does that look like? And then there's these kind of lists of things that show up in the Bible. Well, loving others looks like this. And loving God looks like this. And pretty soon... The things we're talking about, if we kind of got down this road, pretty soon the things we'd be talking about would sound very much like fruit. In other words, if someone had a can-do attitude and they wanted to, they wanted to be a Christian, okay, they wanted to be a Christian, they'd start asking these questions about what does it mean to be a Christian, and they would be attracted very naturally to doing the things that Christians do that makes them look like a Christian. It's way easier to do these things than to actually remain in Christ. Way easier. To say, well, you study your Bible. Okay, I can study my Bible. I'll study my Bible. I got that. Well, you know, you help old ladies. I'll do three. Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays, I help old ladies across the street. You know? Well, you, you, you tithe. Okay, I'll write a check. I'll write a check. Now am I, is that what I am? And this is what happens. Is well-meaning Christians... All of us, all the time, this is a perpetual, vicious circle in the Christian life, is not snooping after the fruit, but rather searching out the Christ continually. But well-meaning Christians, we, we want to, what's the next thing I need to do to be more holy or more righteous? We, we, we tend just to start to look farther out on the branch and say, what are the, what are the fruits hanging on those branches? And we go and we mimic these things. And so there can be two people right next to each other asking the same questions and, and, and bearing the, well, doing the same things and yet bearing radically different fruit. Writing a tithe check, because that's what Christians do, 
is totally different than out of faithful affection to God, realizing that he's given us everything. And that he has only good plans for your life. And he wants to take the things that you give him and work great things out of him. And that when you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that, that through giving back and giving with and incorporating and working with, God does his kingdom in front of us. Radically different ideas. It still looks like a check being written on Sunday. And so if you're not careful, you begin to look like a golfer and you really don't know how to golf. You you become a professional at defining what Christians look like. But you don't know Jesus. You go, well, I know what to do. And I'm saying, well, do you know Jesus? Maybe you ought not to even be doing some of the things you're doing yet. Maybe those fruits are so far down the road. Maybe God really needs to change a lot of your identity before any of that fruit would ever show up. This is the problem, is real fruit is long in the making. But we... If you just go straight to the fruit, you can, you can kind of make it look the same, at least to others. It doesn't look the same to God, but you've got me fooled. In the scriptures, the challenge with this in the scriptures is there is an effort to be descriptive as to what holiness and obeying God's commands looks like And every time that happens, it begins to look very pragmatic. In other words, when when particularly Paul the Apostle, when he writes to the churches about what a, a, a life in Christ looks like, it starts very high and lofty, and it's very fun to read, and it's very encouraging to the soul. But every one of his letters, it feels like, ends in bullet statements about what you should do and what you shouldn't do. It's just kind of the trend is to speak about our freedom in Christ and what Christ has done for us and these ideas, these remaining ideas that kind of pour off the, the pages of Paul and then you get towards the end and it's a list of rules. Don't do that, do that, don't do that, and do that. A good example, the letter to the Galatians. The whole letter to the Galatians is about the fact that they are free from the law. In other words, Paul's writing specifically into a people that have become overwhelmingly fruit-oriented and have forgotten the power of the gospel. And he's saying, forget that stuff. Jesus Christ is the power unto life, all life. Not just everlasting life, life here. Jesus is it, and he has his famous words, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, is Galatians. In other words, Paul says, if he has to go all the way back to zero, he says, love God and do what you want. And then the next chapter says, by the way, the sins of the flesh are so obvious. You can't do this or that or this or that or you'll go to hell. And then he says, and after that, and he goes, the fruit of the Spirit is just as obvious. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. And so you have this trend in Scripture of talking about the importance of remaining in Christ, but people who want to know what does it mean to be obedient need to know kind of what it looks like. And because God's always consistent, the answers are always the same. This happens in Romans and in Galatians, and it happens in Colossians. But you have, you, have, you have a heart. This is how it is. Christians coming into the faith have a heart to know what they're supposed to do. So they'll say, they would say to Paul the Apostle, like, what do I do? And Paul would say, well, Christ is the vine and you're the branch. 
So you make it your goal in life to know Jesus really well. And they go, okay, fine branch, a branch, a branch. Now what do I do? Right? This is honest questions. And Paul would say, well, when I say remain, I mean like you need to foster in your spirit an affectionate regard for all that Christ is doing, even when it's hard. You need to trust that he has his best intentions for you. And that even when it feels like he's pushing you through the eye of a needle, you need to find a way that says, I still trust that he loves me and cares for me. That's what you need to do. Okay, could trust and love. Okay. Trust, love, trust, love, trust. Okay, and you show back the next morning. Okay, I'm remaining by trusting and loving the Lord. Now what do I do? Because I'm done with those. Now what do I do? And Paul would say, well, it kind of means that you have a heart of obedience. I mean, God speaks into your life. And you go, okay, well, what does that mean? And he would say, well, there's a lot of things. You have to love God and you have to love others. And you're like, okay, I love God and I love others. Now what do I do? And he'd say, well, sleeping with your girlfriend. Let's talk about that. It's going to get that practical. It will eventually get this practical. Or, you know, you drive a really big car and you're in debt. Or, you know, you like to stay up late and look at the internet. Or you really like to know bad stuff about other people's lives and you like to share it. And it feels good. And it kills people. It just, it's going to get practical. And every time it gets practical, our tendency is to head right to the fruit rather than to say the fix to that is to remain in Christ. That's always our tendency. Always. I cannot spring you from this minefield of the Christian life. I can't say to you, oh, I just plow up the mines. They will always be there. I'm in my own minefield, yelling over to your minefield, be careful. You're going to step on something. I'm limbless and armless, hollering to you. It's inescapable. The Christian life is a continual challenge of seeking after Jesus and not being attracted to what other Christians are doing for the sake of looking Christian. That is so easy. You can fool me overnight. You cannot fool God. Let's take this teaching into the church of the Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. I hope you're there. I just want to set that up. I want to set up the vine and branches idea to you. It's sitting there for you now. Now I'd like to read Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Just listen, listen for the theme, okay? So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Is that vine and branches or isn't it? It's beautiful. You would have thought that Paul the Apostle, rather than killing Christians, was among Jesus Christ when he said it. I mean, across time and space, the same truth comes out for Paul. He's saying, you're free. Now that you've been, you've been saved into Christ, remain in Christ and pursue Christ and seek to know him better. And in knowing him better, you'll know yourself better and you will transform into what God's making you to be. He's saying that. Now watch what he does in verse 8. This is the exact concern that Paul has. 
See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. You see what he's talking about? Don't chase the fruit. Don't go out and buy fancy golf shoes. Become a golfer. Seek Christ. Seek Christ. Don't be confused by what people are saying is required to be Christian. And the conversation goes on and on from there. Verses 9 to 15, Paul goes right back to remind them of who they were. I'll just read 9 to 12 for you. He says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given the fullness of Christ. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you are the, the branch fused into the vine, and the vine is infusing you with life. This is exactly what he's saying. And that thought continues all the way to 15. And then he goes right back to the caution. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or regard a religious festival. And that continues all the way to the end of the chapter. Look at 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, would you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul says it this way in Corinthians, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am nothing. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains and have not love, I am nothing. If I... Give, surrender all I have to the poor and surrender my body to the flames and yet have not love, I gain nothing. It's the same thing. He's saying these are hollow ideas devoid from a love for Christ and a love for others. But now watch. What's the title to chapter 3? Rules for holy living. This is it. You're free. You're free in Jesus Christ, chapter 3. Now here's what it needs to look like. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. It's high language about our identity in Christ, and then it's get golf shoes, good ones. Right? It's the high language about all of this, and it's bullet statements. And chapter 3 gets just more and more pragmatic all the way down. Pretty soon it's going wives, husbands, children, slaves, masters. Church, see you later. And that's almost how the letter ends. There is this circle, this inescapable circle of a people that truly does desire to know the Lord better, will inquire of the Lord, how then, how then shall we live? And God will say, well, here's some, here's some starting points. I'm consistent. It always looks the same. My love for one another and my love for God should always look the same. Live this way. But we're tempted to chase after those. We read the epistles of Paul from the back to the front. Not from the front to the back. The problem is, is every church has to have a chapter 3. Every church, after we say, remain in Jesus Christ, that your salvation is not dependent on my estimation of your faithfulness, but on his estimation of your love for him and for others. 
Every church after that, if they're a responsible church, says to have to say, this is about how it looks. So here's our chapter three. We have things in our church, things like a life group. A life group is a hollow principle of no value that will not be in heaven and will be thrown into the flames. But we're using it right now because some of us are not very disciplined about loving one another and sharing our lives together and studying the word in community. And so we've established artificial ideas that bolster up principles and concepts that help us to know and love God better. The life group. Some of you bring life into every life group you go to and some of you suck the life out of it. You take it and you wring it dry and you stomp on it. Some of you are a walking life group. You just connect. You connect. And then you're the ones who say to me, I don't understand the deal about life groups. And I'm like, don't worry. You're it. I'm just trying to get people to act like you. Sunday school. Sunday school is a hollow idea. It's a hollow idea. It's a construct. It's, it's the accoutrements of the church. It's the, it's the shoes and the bag. and it's, it's the idea that in our church we say that if we say we love God, we want to know what he says into our lives. We want to give him not one opportunity for one person to speak into our lives, but multiple opportunities for the Holy Spirit to act. So we open the book, we read the words, we submit ourselves to it within a community where the Spirit's at work because we believe that wherever two or more are gathered, you can say this verse outside of time of crisis, whenever two or more are gathered in his name, there is also. It works all the time. That's what we say. So we say, therefore, we study the Bible. It's kind of like school and we don't have a cool name. That's it. Sunday school. But it's a hollow construct. It is a construct. When I get to heaven, I will not be in Sunday school. I will be singing praises to the Lamb all the time because I'm fostering a love for him and an affection for him. Why would I go off and read his word when I'm with the word? Just now, this is why we do Sunday school. And it goes on and on. Twelve stones is a a construct. Flip side is a construct. Pedal is a construct. It is a hollow machine that you get, the body of Christ gets on and pedals to go somewhere. It's a way that we've thought about to coordinate the fitness of the body to be what God wants us to be. We've said that in a covenant community of Jesus lovers who express an affection for one another, it's natural that they should want to study God's word and serve one another, that we are both interdependent and desirous of knowing God's word. Why would we not try to do that well? Right now, we're, we're running a race on a pogo stick. That's how inefficient the way our church does the service of one another and Sunday school. We're bouncing. I almost got one off Craigslist. I did. I was nervous she'd make me bounce it up here. And then I would kill myself. So why would, you know, we're just trying to do things well. I, I am making no delusions. That over there is paper on a wall. These are people. What we're trying to say is we want the church to study God's word in a calm, stable environment 
And we want the church to be well served in a calm, stable environment. We love God and we love others. And as we pursue this, as you pursue this, as we pursue all of these things in the church, this is what I would encourage you is remain in Jesus Christ. Do not get caught in the trappings of the faith. We have to talk about these things, but these things do not save. Jesus saves. Amen. Will you pray with me, please? I want to give you a moment to respond in a way that is appropriate for you. Some of you may have heard this message at the perfect level of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that apart from him you have no life. No life. That the gardener is coming and he's pruning and he's cutting. And that all life, if you have a thirst for Jesus, this morning I would call you, I would call you to make an affectionate, faithful commitment to Jesus, saying, I will remain in you, and therefore I will remain. I mean, some of you need to go no further than that this morning to enjoy the freedom, the freedom of receiving life from someone else for change. So I pray that over you. I pray that now as you respond, you respond purely to the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, which is you are in need of life, Jesus Christ offers life. Apart from him, there is no life. There's another level, though. Some of you may need to respond to this from, the, from the, the idea of, for years, you have been thinking you're righteous, and now you're wrestling with the fact that you're simply self-righteous. For years, you've been talking about being holy, and now you're realizing how unholy your behavior has been because you've been doing the right things for the wrong reason. And that's full of pride, and it's full of arrogance, and it's full of everything but Jesus. And so for you, maybe this is a time of confession. And then there is a level where there's those of you who are in Christ, and you simply need to be reminded this morning to fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of your faith and to relax about the fruit that are, are not quick to come in your life. Particularly, fruits, fruits dealing with addictions and major identity issues. I just pray right now, you put them on the altar and you say, Lord, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to allow you to change me in your time. And all these things, I encourage you to respond in faithfulness to God and to God alone. Lord, we love you. This is a room of individuals who love you. Lord, and corporately, we labor to express holy affection towards you. And so I pray your spirit would honor that and you would build us up. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.